We're in Acts chapter 9. I, I think, think it was 31. 31? All right, good. So we have Paul back uh, in Tarsus, which is uh, good. We'll see him again in a little bit. You, If you are following, I, I know some of you may not be, but if you want to follow in the map, because we're going to be talking about some geography today, uh, the one on page 3, uh, if you have the handout or the notes, at least it's my page 3. I discovered that sometimes, because I, I used the original one when I started teaching this years ago, so it sometimes could be a little bit off, but it should be the map on page, uh, I think page 3, right under the witness in Judea and Samaria. Again, if, if you want to use it, it's just that's why I put them in the note packet. But um, what I thought I would, I'll start with, with verse 31, and then um, we'll, we'll finish this chapter, move into chapter 10. What happens here in Luke's narrative is he switches from a focus on Saul back to a, a focus on Peter. And there are some preparatory things that are going to happen at the end of chapter 9. And then chapter 10 is one of uh, two or three most important chapters in the book of Acts. Chapter 10 is a major watershed in understanding what God is doing this side of the cross. We'll get to that in just a minute. But uh, you're you're going to see this in just a second. The, The shift now is back to Peter. But if you look at verse 31, this is something Luke does throughout the book of Acts. It just gives a quick summary statement. And in loaded in that summary statement are loads of people and uh, uh, perhaps disciples. But it's just a summary. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, just a couple of observations. And obviously, this is a summary statement. But the church, the the first phrase you see in verse 31, don't forget, when you see the word church in the New Testament, you always have to determine, is he talking about the organic church, the living body of Christ, or is he talking about the local church down the corner? So obviously he's talking about the organic living body of Christ. He's not thinking of specific buildings or people. And he just says the church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And immediately that should cause you to think of Acts 1.8. That Christ said, I want you to start in Jerusalem and go to Judea and go to Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what's starting to happen. The church, the gospel message, and therefore the church is growing. And he uses that word, it's multiplying. But there are just four characteristics in this summary statement. It had peace. And you have to think about that for a minute. Wait a minute. They're going to increasingly face more and more persecution. You just had seen a whole bunch of persecution. So without belaboring this too much, what does he mean by peace? I mean, I'm trying to get you to think, and I know that's hard on a, right after you had your lunch or before you had your lunch or looking forward to lunch, but it's just, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, if you're thinking as you read it, it, it causes you to know, wait a minute. The church is increasingly facing more and more persecution. So what does he mean by peace? 
Yeah, I think it's the peace of God that is one of the results of the gospel. It do, it can and often does, but it can't can mean, you know, peace in relationship or peace with the the the, the state in which you live or whatever. Or it can mean shalom, which is the Hebrew for peace, peace with God. And I think that's probably how we should understand this. Because as it grows, it meets with more and more hostility and more and more persecution and more and more challenges. It was being built up. And that, and again, that's a metaphor and that's the right way to translate it. But, you know, and it's, it's, it's like a building. It's like an architect's word. <laughs> but what he means by that, I think, is that it is being built up. It's being strengthened. It's being edified. And you know what edified means? It, it's, it's, being, uh, it, it's being stabilized because the gospel and peace with God brings stability and brings edification and brings strengthening not necessarily always physically, but spiritually, because you're at peace with God. And as a result of being peace at peace with God and being encouraged, built up, strengthened, they're walking, the church is walking. Now that is throughout the New Testament, that word walking, or just the singular word walk, is a characteristic of the normal walk, normal life, normal pattern, normal habit, of the Christian. Walking, because that's something you do all the time. I'm learning since this herniated disc in my back, and I'm in therapy now. I'm, I've been told by the therapist, I don't walk right. I have terrible posture in the way I walk, and even more horrendous posture in the way I sit. I'm 71 years old, and I'm now learning this. And I'm saying that somewhat humorously. But they are teaching me how to walk. They're teaching me the right way to walk so that it strengthens my back and all those crazy things. Maybe some of you have been through that. That's not really what it means here, but it means that normal pattern. But notice how it's described, walking in the fear of the Lord. Now, the term fear, it's again a figure of speech. The term fear throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, is a worship word. So the walk of this church that is at peace with God, being strengthened, built up, their norm now is their, their norm is a worshipful, a worshipful walk with the Lord. And I mean, this is one of these sentences you can skip over this really quickly, but we shouldn't. I mean, it's really quite profound, Tom. Is this fear kind of like a reverence? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah, it is exactly what it means. And so, I mean, it's just, because remember, these are people, you know, in, in Judea, you, they'd be Jews, but in Galilee and Samaria, they're not. So now, instead of being an enemy of the Lord and being in rebellion against him, now their norm is worship, a worshipful relationship with him, which is extraordinary. And then the last characteristic is, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, he's the sign of the new covenant. You are baptized by the Holy Spirit when you put your faith in Christ. You're in the church. And again, he chooses a term that you don't normally think of, but the comfort. Comfort in what sense? Yeah. 
They're on the right track. They're on the right track. They believe the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Before they had stopped with the Old Testament. That's now right. Now they're believing in, you know, the word. How important is uh, comfort? I think I can ask this of men. How important is comfort in instability of our lives? I mean, comfort can have a lot of applications, but what does comfort bring to you in your daily, normal patterns of living? Peace. Peace. Feeling of well-being. I like that. It gives you a degree of confidence. In 2 Corinthians chapter one, I think it's chapter one, I'm pretty sure it is. In Second Corinthians chapter one, the Apostle Paul talks about the comfort of God. And that word comfort is used ten times in that chapter. And it's a key chapter in really helping us to understand that comfort is one of the things that God, God's presence, God's walk with us, but in this case, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, because he indwells us and we learn more and more what that means to be more and more dependent on him, to be more and more under his control, that brings a level of comfort. Not chaos, not terror, not um, just a dread of life. Every time you get up in the morning, you just dread the thought of the day. A comfort that the Holy Spirit brings to our life, which is a stability, a solidness, my God's in control. And my God has my best interests at heart. And maybe I've been forgiven. And, yeah, and not maybe, you have been forgiven, right. judicially. Right. And so all that brings, see, it, that's why I love how he does this. He bookends this little summary with two profound thoughts. We're at peace with God, and we're experiencing his comfort. That's really a transformed life. And so these regions, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, which is largely the whole region of the eastern Mediterranean, you see the church characterized by these four dynamics. Man, that's transformational. You can see why they just start turning everything upside down. And I don't mean militarily. You know what I mean by that. Ed. Can Saul converting um, over to Christianity be tied into this time of peace? Is his converting to Christianity maybe awakened a lot of the Jewish people up to take another look? And is that, that tied into this time? Of you know, you're you're uh, you're drawing out something that's a logical inference. I mean, it really is. It's a reasonable inference, a reasonable conclusion. But I can't I can't prove that from the text of Scripture specifically. But I mean, that's a reasonable conclusion to reach. Paul's testimony. Would have would have resulted in one or two responses. Wow, something has really happened to this guy. I've got to find out what. Or like you saw with Jesus and and, and Peter and others, an a greater and more intense hostility. They're just so hardened in their heart. They're not even going to seriously consider the transformation in, in Saul's life. Still is defiant against the Lord as I've always been. And I'll kill the next guy that gets close to being like Saul. But I think, I mean, he, I think you're right. The transformation of Saul would have been a serious impetus to many other Jews considering the claims of Christ. 
as well as actually as well as gentles. I saw another hand somewhere, Glenn. Can, can we connect the comfort to, to the books of Peter we studied where we're talking about joy and hope? Of course, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Because there's a lot going on. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you don't have the reassurance that you're going in the right direction. And and these words that he uses to describe the church at this point, I mean, you got to remember, <laughs> they're not facing necessarily something easy. They're facing growing hostility, and it's still costing many of them to tr- trust Christ, especially the Jewish people. I mean, if they put their faith in Christ at this point, it would be costly to them. So these are just tremendous words that describe, man, something is really happening here. And again, it's what Christ said in his assignment that he gave to them in Acts 1-8. Jim? So, you know, we translate it encouraged instead of comfort. Comfort seems very more passive to me. Mm. Encouraged seems to be more, I don't know, maybe they're more motivated or energized to live in their faith and to expand it, that sort of thing. The, the word uh, there that's used could be translated very legitimately either way. I wasn't on the editorial committee of the ESV, so I don't know why those guys chose, Greek scholars chose comfort. But I'm just the opposite. I think comfort better captures it. And that's... Better. I'm just saying it looks to me like yeah. it's more passive and one of... Yeah. Comfort's received for courage is... But I mean, Jim, I understand, I understand what you're saying. And really, that is, um, that's the beauty of words. Because it can, a, a particular term can be nuanced in terms of how you're going to understand it and apply it to your life. Uh, Hemingway, or no, it wasn't him, it was Mark Twain. Mark Twain, I forget where it's located, it's in one of his essays. But he, he did an essay on writing, and he said, the most important thing for a writer is to choose the right word. I'm paraphrasing what he said, because he says things a lot better than I do. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a seasoned writer, but I've written several books, and I know that is difficult sometimes. I'm writing on a what word best captures what I'm really trying to say here. And so sometimes, you know, you well, you used to have to pull out a thesaurus, now you just go to Google and hit it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and, 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 I mean, I've, and the body language. The body language of what, and that, you know, so that, because remember, only 7% of meaning is communicated through words. The other 90% of meaning is communicated in nonverbal ways. It's the iceberg principle. Well, yeah. yeah. I have a question for you. Uh, you know, you had mentioned, I believe, sometime, maybe years ago, that we had when we were in discussion of uh, the, the saints that were actually used as, as uh, human torches that lined some of the highways. And, um, and some of these people... Uh, I think it's been recorded historically that they actually, when they were uh, burning, were singing. And uh, to me, if you can sing during that, you've overcome an awful lot. Um, And then today, I always liked applications today too, Jim, in the sense of, okay, here we are, 2018, 
there's a lot of um, a lot of negative words out there being spewed out of the mouth of empty and empty hearted people, I would say in many cases. As Christians living in that environment, um, how do we um, is, is this a war of, of good and evil that existed in the times that we're reading today um, in this book of Acts? Can you draw some parallels there, maybe? Well, <laughs> that's a, a good question. There's uh, so many... I can do that very superficially, do it very in a very detailed way, but I'll do it a little superficially. I mean, the reality for us is always to remember what, what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10 and following. Our fight, our battle, our war is not against flesh and blood. I mean, just human being type. It is against the, you know, the rulers, the authorities in the heavenlies. And he's talking there about the cosmic nature of the struggle, meaning against Satan and his, his demons, his, his minions. And that's important for us to remember, and therefore it's important for us to be prepared, which is why he uses the whole armor of God and so on. But um, Christianity is, all, I mean, genuine biblical Christianity that we live it, live out is not only that being very defensive and very protective, but it's also exuding a lifestyle and a pattern of living that is uh, demonstrably different than everyone else around us that doesn't know the Lord. That's my hardest struggle. I mean, it is, it is the most difficult thing for me is when I'm just going through the normal patterns of a morning, you know, when I just do the same thing every morning, get up and do this and do this, and I go out and go to the fitness center and all that stuff, and it's to, you know, I'm barely waking up to see people and greet them and show them the love of God. I don't want to do that. I just want to get to the treadmill and get this done and go home and shower. You know, I mean, it's just, it's to show that. And so what Luke is telling us, and that we, you know, it's, it's five minutes after 12, and we still are only on one verse, so I'd like to do a little more than that. But um, Luke is saying that the church in these three regions is exhibiting something absolutely supernatural. And those three were, excuse me, those four words, shalom with God, being edified and built up, exhibiting the worshipful reverence of the Lord in their daily walk, and having a comfort and encouragement that's only sourced in the Holy Spirit. None of that is normal. None of that is normal. It's the supernatural abnormality. I'm using weird way to put it, but a supernatural abnormality that draws people, that makes an impact on people. And it's for that reason why I just like to choose the word comfort, just from what Jim said, because, and that's another, it's hard for me sometimes, to really demonstrate genuine God-centered comfort for people that are hurting, or need a word of encouragement, or need a need a word that just helps them to move to the next hour, let alone the next day, and so on. Um, and I, I, learned, I learned something from one of my guys in another Bible study, another class of mine. 
And he, he is just talking about the assumptions we make about people when we see them, we have no idea who, we are, who they are. And they do something that really offends us, cuts us off in traffic or doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, respond nicely to a greeting we give them or something. And you make all kinds of assumptions about them. And most of the time they're wrong because you have no idea what's ripping that person apart. And the ability to comfort is to, and I just, I just it's so hard for me to do this, give, give, the person, give the person the benefit of the doubt. Because most of the times it has nothing to do with you and how they're responding to you. It's all the other stuff churning in their life. And uh, that's, that's, I don't know, that's maybe not hard for you guys, but that's very hard for me. Because I, I'm not by nature willing to give somebody the benefit of the doubt simply because, you know, I'm so task oriented and so goal oriented. I just, well, you're in my way, you know. <laughs> and I always am drawn to what Erwin McManus says uh, in one of his books always be ready for the divine appointments. Do you understand what he means by that? The divine appointments, the people God brings across your path. Always be ready for that. And that's, I'm not, I, when somebody comes across my path that I'm not expecting, in my way, they're a nuisance, not an opportunity. They're in my way, not a divine appointment. It's an interruption. Yeah, I mean, and I have to break that. And it's so much easier when Peggy's right next to me reminding me of this. But when I'm, and it's so, I mean, I do, I, I pray about that now. I make that a matter of daily prayer that, Lord, help me to be ready for your divine appointments. But anyway, so, I mean, I, well, we spent a lot of time on this, but I'm glad because you're getting the point. Luke is summarizing something utterly profound here. Oh, please, yes, absolutely. So, what I'm seeing in, in verse 31 is the dependence on God. Absolutely. As they become modified, it magnifies their dependence, and it's even more, more glaring in that now they're dependent on the gospel when they were dependent on the law. Yep, and for the Jews particularly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, good. I'm glad you got the point on verse 31. We spent uh, 25 minutes on it. That's really good. That's really good. Verse 33, then, we'll move into this. Now, in, in the rest of this chapter, chapter 9, there are two messianic miracles. Now, I've, I've talked about that in, in our study for the book of Acts up to this point. And remember what that means. The same kind of miracles Jesus did, the apostles do. And they, we call them messianic miracles because they are to draw the attention of the person to Jesus. These are ongoing, continued proofs that Jesus is the Messiah, even though his, he's ascended back to the Father. And so these, and you, you see that, especially in verse 34, when Peter explains what just happened. So, I mean, this is, it's, it's nothing difficult. It's an important miracle. And Peter, and now as Peter, I'm in verse 33, by the way. Now, as Peter went here and there, I, I like how Luke does that, and I look how ESV translates that. It's, this is like a visitation tour 
of, of Peter. He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, if you do look on the map that's on page 3, Lydda is about 23 miles from Jerusalem. We're now, we're back, we're, we're not, you know, up in Tarsus, right? We're back in Judea. We're back in an area where the vast majority of the people that are there, 90 percentile plus, almost 99, someplace 100, they're Jews. And so he's at Lydda. There was found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Or you could translate that, bedridden for eight years, because he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Why doesn't he say Jesus heals you? Other names were out there, maybe Jesus, but he was Jesus the Christ. And that means the Messiah. So, I mean, this is very specific. I mean, don't miss this. Don't, don't go over that quickly. That's the key to the whole miracle. Peter says, Jesus the Messiah, that's what Christ means, heals you. This is a messianic miracle to draw attention as unalterable, incontrovertible proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Rise and make your bed. And immediately arose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, Sharon is more of um, uh, a term the Jews used to describe the whole plain, the whole coastal plain there, called the plains of Sharon. But it's all that area along the coast. Saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And that's a, that's a, a, a very significant uh, way to describe it. This is an area where there's the largest part of the population are Jews. They're turning to the Lord, which means they're turning to the Lord from something else. I mean, do you understand why he's putting it that way? So it's a, it's a, it's a clear a statement of a repentant they're headed one direction. Now they're turning toward the Lord. So, I mean, it's a remarkable summary of, tra- of transformational description of what happens when people come to Christ. And so it's a messianic miracle with an intended effect. It has, it has, it has a powerful effect in this whole region. And as Jesus' miracles drew attention to him and his message, those messianic miracles are continuing. Okay? I mean, it's not difficult material. It's a very straightforward narrative. But it's just reminding us again that these miracles that the apostles are doing are messianic in nature, and it's having an effect. Verse 36, now, Peter has moved from Lydda about all... 12, 13 miles or more, and he's along the coast. And he's at Joppa. And if, again, you're following in your map, uh, Joppa is the oldest port, one of, if not the oldest port city in the Mediterranean. Um, I've been there many times. By the way, can I just tell you a quick story? When the pioneers in 1909, I mean, that's the term they use, when the early Jewish settlers were coming back to Israel, when the Ottoman Empire still owned the area, they got permission to build a new city. And they decided to build that city just a little bit north of Joppa. Do you know what that city was? Tel Aviv. And so Tel Aviv, and I know, I think I've told you that, Tel Aviv 
is the name of the town in Babylonia where Ezekiel lived. During the captivity, that's where he lived. And they chose that name because Ezekiel prophesied the Jews coming back to their homeland. So, I mean, I'm telling you, I, this just, that's stuff that's neat to tell. I always would tell that story when we were standing there and I have the tour, I'm leading, we're in Joppa, and I'm pointing out, because you see, you're right at Joppa, right there, you can see it, is Tel Aviv, and these massive buildings, and it's like New York City. High-rises, skyscrapers, and all that. And that's the city that the pioneers in 1909 planted, and they did it right north of Joppa. So Joppa's a major town because it's a port, and he tells us, he's Luke, tells us there's a disciple there. Her name is Tabitha. That's a woman's name. What's extraordinary about this? And she's called a disciple. She's called a disciple. Now that is the only time in the New Testament where a woman is called a disciple. There'll be a woman named Phoebe in Romans 16 who's called a deacon or deaconess. But here, she's called a disciple. She's an extraordinary woman. Her Greek name is Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Because of what we see down in verse 39, the assumption is this is a wealthy woman. And she is using her wealth and her position for taking care of and ministering to people. In those days, meaning at this time Peter's in the area, she became ill and died. And when they washed, had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now that language is the language of getting her ready for burial, but what is remarkable, and it's totally out of the ordinary. They washed her body, meaning they're getting ready for burial. Now, the norm was you buried the person who died within 24 hours. And depending on the time of day, even before the sun went down, where did they put her? In the second floor of the building, presumably her home. Next verse tells us probably why they did this. Since Lydda was near Joppa, as I mentioned, or it's about 12, 13 miles or so, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him. Now, these would be just disciples, other believers in Joppa. It, it doesn't mean Peter and John, it, just other believers in Joppa. They knew Peter was over there, and so they sent two men to him and said, please come to us about delay. Now, I want to ask you a question. What words would you use to describe the motivation and perspective and view these disciples have in Joppa. Faith. And maybe we can add another word. Hope. I mean, this is, don't miss this. This lady, Tabitha, or her name was Dorcas, very well-known, very influential lady who is a Christian. She's a believer. She's called a disciple. She dies. And they wash her body as if they're preparing her for burial, but instead of burying her, they put her upstairs and send two guys down to Peter about 12 miles away and say, Peter, you've got to come here. What's their anticipation? Peter's going to do a messianic miracle. 
I mean, that's a, that's a, that's not. This is this is grounded in confidence and a degree of faith and certainly a measurable hope. And so, I mean, it's really something. So Peter rose and went with them in verse 39. And when they arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing, it's a very hard word to translate, tunics, cloaks, clothing, and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So here are these widows and other ladies who were part of what she was doing and just showing all the things that she had done. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, now you can make two conclusions here. You got faith demonstrated by Peter, but you also see once again the power of prayer. He doesn't just do it. He prays. And then he says, in the middle of verse 40, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. That is the same word that is used of Jesus' resurrection. Anasthenai. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So another, like Ananias in Lydda, another messianic miracle has occurred. And this is one that is far beyond somebody that was paralyzed and now can walk. This is a woman who died and is brought back to life. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now that is extremely important for chapter 10. It locates where Peter is and whose house he's staying. If I could take you there today, I can show you the house. We know that house. And there's, there's like a little big, not a little, it's a big sign and tells you. But we know where Peter stays. Now, the building isn't exactly the same, but we know where that is. It's right along the coast. It's really neat to see that. Job is a beautiful town. Yeah. yeah. I always wondered, you know, like Lazarus and then her, if they, you know, after the body, you know, you die, your spirit goes up to heaven, how that was coming back again. You know what I mean? Oh, I do know what you mean. And don't expect me to answer that question, because I have no idea. Because I would think if the Lord Lord said to Tabitha, you got to go back. No, I'm not going back. But I I don't don't know. It's it's just... uh, And I mean, it's even like with Lazarus and a few other people throughout the Bible in the Old Testament, too... uh, they're brought back to life. Is that a resurrection or is it a um, like a resuscitation? Because next question is, does Tabitha die again? Sure. I mean, the answer, I mean, it's not recorded that she does, but I don't think Tabitha lived forever <laughs> in that sense. So, I mean, the assumption is that she died. So, and it's hard. It's maybe cutting things a little too 
too thinly, but dicing them too thinly. But uh, it's probably more accurate to say she's resuscitated. She's brought back, same body and everything, and she will die again. But anyway. But this is a messianic miracle, and it has um, it has its impact. It very is very similar, very similar to Luke chapter eight, where Jairus's daughter. Now I know that goes. You have to go back and remember that. But it's very similar to Jesus' miracle with Jairus's daughter, who had died, and Jesus brings her back to life and presents her to her back to her father. So, I mean, the, uh, the main point I want to make here, and I think we're able to make that, both what happens to Aeneas and Lydda and what happens to Tabitha here in Joppa, these are messianic miracles. And they have their intended effect. People turn to the Lord uh, at the end of the Lydda material in Luke 35, and then many believed in the Lord, verse 42, after what happened to Tabitha. Isn't that the mission of this? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right, absolutely. And, you know, I, we said this many, many times when we were um, studying a number of the books. The Lord never does a miracle or uses what somebody does as a miracle to show off. It always has a purpose. And that purpose, it's very clear what the purpose is here. So, um, unless you have any questions, I want to move into chapter 10. But the importance here of what this shift in what Luke is doing as he's, as he's writing his, his history of the of the early church, is he wants to get get us our focus back on Peter. After that little discussion about Saul and, and Philip up in Samaria and all that stuff, now we're back with Peter because what happens in chapter ten is a watershed. This is an extremely important chapter in the book of Acts, and it it sets us up for what the apostle Paul will be doing. All right, are there any other questions or comments about the uh, material on, on Peter? This uh, Simon, yeah. a tanner, they say. Yes. Uh, he tans the, the uh, hides of animals and makes them into... By the way, this is an, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. For a Jew, a tanner of animals is an unclean profession. You know what I mean by unclean? That's the Jewish language in the Old Testament. So, I mean, it's just kind of interesting that, that Luke just says, by the way, he's staying with Simon, who's a tanner. Which in Levitical law code is an unclean profession. Then, actually, further down in chapter 10, it says, and bring once... And bring one Simon, who is called Peter. I didn't get that. I read it before. Oh, okay. Yeah. Simon. That's why I asked about it. Yeah. There are a lot of Simons around. Simon, the guy who also is called Peter. Simon, Peter, bring him. Okay. That's all. I think that's all I mean. Many Simons. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Now, if you, again, if you're looking at your map and you're, you're trying to follow that, you're in Joppa, okay? Let your eye just go north along the coast and you see Caesarea. 
or Caesarea Maritima. This is the great, oh, I wish I could take you there, get on a plane. This is the city that Herod the Great built, the great port city of Caesarea. It's still, it, uh, almost all the major things that Herod the Great built are still there. And they used, when they built the port, they, they were using something fairly new that the Roman Empire had developed, um, concrete. Concrete that was used to build the huge pillars all around the port. Because see, the, the, the big problem with this part of the Mediterranean is because of the Nile River, and it's, it's, uh, it's off this map, but the Nile River and the del- Delta it's just dumping huge amounts of silt into the eastern Mediterranean. And the waves and movements would bring that silt all up along the coast. And so when Herod's engineers were designing this port, they had to design a port that would filter out all that silt. Because quickly, that would just ruin the port. I mean, that makes, you know, enough about how. And so it's, it's magnificent. This underwater concrete that Rome had developed and all that's still there. One of the neatest things, it'll never happen to me, but one of the neatest things that I wanted to do in one of my trips, which I was going to do after I retired, was you can, you can it's a little expensive, but you can go underwater. And, you know, it's, um, what do you call that? What you wear? Yeah, like scuba diving. And you can go underwater and you can see the entire concrete structure that Herod's engineers built. Oh, I so wanted to do that. But I don't have to wait till the kingdom. And then when Jesus returns, I'm going to say, Lord, here's one of the things I want to do. Sure, go ahead and do it. <laughs> but I won't need scuba deer then. I'm probably, no, I'm, I'm making that up. But I mean, I just, I wish I could show you. This is incredible. This whole port city of Caesarea that Herod had built. But at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, let's just take that sentence apart. What is a Roman centurion doing in Caesarea? Because in AD 6, Judea had become a Roman province. Rome deposed Archelaus, who was the son of Herod the Great, and made it a Roman province. That meant that the legions would be there to support the Roman governor. Where did the Roman governor live? In Caesarea. He didn't live in Jerusalem. Who's the most famous Roman governor of Judea? You know his name. I know you know his name. You just don't know you know his name. Sure you do. Come on, tell you. You know who, who's the most famous Roman governor of the province of Judea? Herod? No. Not Herod. He was the king. Pontius Pilate. He was the most famous Roman governor. And... By now, he's, he's gone because we're past that period. So there are lots of Roman troops in Caesarea. And one of them is a guy named Cornelius. He's a centurion. Centurion means he has charge of 100 Roman troops. And his little group is called the Italian cohort. Cohort was made up of 400 men. So Cornelius has got a lot of responsibility. But it tells us he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. Here is a Roman soldier, 
an officer of the Roman military, a centurion, who has become a proselyte. He's converted to Judaism. Now, that should surprise you a little bit, but he's converted to Judaism. And he is fearing the Lord. He's a devout man. His whole family is. He gives generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Cornelius builds the synagogue in Capernaum. He builds that synagogue. His money personally builds that synagogue. So this guy is really devout to the Lord. About the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. in the afternoon of that day, he, that is Peter, or rather Cornelius, saw a vision of an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror, meaning Cornelius is staring at the angel in terror, and said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. It's pleasing to God. Now send men to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. That's 31 miles from Caesarea down to Joppa. He's lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he sends three people, two of his servants and a soldier. That's a party of three men. So, I mean, what's happening here? Don't miss this. Here you have this Roman military officer who is converted to Judaism, devout, praying to the Lord. He's praying, and all of a sudden an angel shows up. And in terror, he says, what is it, Lord? And he explains to him, I want you to go down and get Peter. Presumably, he doesn't know who Peter is. I mean, he doesn't know, he doesn't pray. So, okay, he sends three guys down. Now, you have to understand this, too. Here's going to be Simon Peter who's going to get these three guys. Hear from that. God has to prepare Peter's heart. Because there is no way Peter instinctively is going to go 31 miles to a Roman military officer unless the Lord convinces him this is really important. Now, I'm trying to go fast, and I shouldn't go fast. Why, why would he not want to go? Pardon me? Why would he not want to go? Well, I mean, just humanly speaking. Yeah, I mean, you know, Rome hasn't shown a lot of favor. So it's just he would, I mean, just instinctive. I'm just humanly speaking. This is not going to be something he's naturally going to respond to. So God has to prepare him, and that's what verse 9 and following is. And this is what, this is the most important part. What time is, do we have time to do this? I think we can. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, that they would be the three people Cornelius had sent, Peter went up, on the housetop, about the sixth hour, to pray. The sixth hour would, would be about noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. Now remember, he went up to pray. It's about noon, so it's time for his lunch. 
While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. The Greek word that is translated trance is ekstasis. Ekstasis. What English word do we get from that? Ecstasy. So, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of an unusual word, but, I mean, this is, he is, he's communicating, so it's not just he's in some kind of a crazy LSD trance. I mean, this is a, this is an ecstatic, I'm ready for Lord, you, Lord, what do you want? And he saw the heavens opened, and something like, now notice that's a simile, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the sea. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means. That's an emphatic Rejection. It's the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. No way, Lord. I'm paraphrasing it the way my daughter would say it. No way, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. What is Peter saying here? These are non kosher animals. And I'm a faithful Jew. There's no way I'm going to eat this stuff. I've never done it before, and I'm not going to start doing it now. No way. Again, I said by no means. That's the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven, meaning the thing like the sheet that had these animals taken back to heaven. <clears throat> now this is, at one level, this it sounds almost like a ridiculous vision. But God is communicating something to him here. The language, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, that, that's kind of awkward. It's difficult for us to understand. But I want you to think about something here. Peter, you have to change the way you think about the kosher laws. You must change the way you think about the separation between Jews and Gentiles. Peter, you must think differently about the 1,000 500 years in which your people have done these things. Because 1446 B.C. is when the law was given. Because, Peter, a new era has dawned. Now, that should not surprise him. Because the Lord Jesus had explained to them, in particularly the upper room, when the Holy Spirit comes and descends, things are going to be different. The new order has started. And so the Lord, through this vision, is communicating to Peter in a very poignant way. The kosher laws no longer apply. Verse 17. 
Can I keep going? I'd really like, even if we go a little over. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, and that's mild, that's putting it mildly, as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made an inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. Meaning the gate of the house or the little compound. And called out to ask whether Simon, who's called Peter, was lodging there. Verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, takes you back to verse 17, inwardly perplexed. He's trying to figure this out. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. Now, you have to think about this. It's kind of neat. Inwardly perplexed, pondering the vision, the Spirit says. Reflection combined with divine intervention results in clarity of understanding. You and me, as men of God, reading the Word of God, reflecting on it, thinking about it, and in the Spirit of God who inspired His Word and helps us to understand starts to bring and produce understanding and resulting action. (coughs) That's how it should work. It's kind of neat how God does this here to Peter. And so Peter went down in verse 21 to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. He is Peter, his guests meaning the three guys. The next day, so they stayed overnight, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, meaning other believers in Joppa. Don't know how many exactly. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. So if my math is correct, since the initial vision of Cornelius in verse 3, it's four days later. Enter Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. Good night. But Peter lifted him and said, Stand up, I too am a man. The NET, the New English Translation, has, I too am a mere mortal. I'm not a divine man. Which was way Greco-Roman people thought. And Cornelius is a Greco-Roman guy who's converted to Judaism, but he's still kind of thinking like a Greek and Roman. And Peter says, I'm just a man, a mere mortal. Stop it. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he, Peter, said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Did Peter get the point of the vision? Yes, yes. yes he did. So, so why did he say it was a tanner? 
Why did he what? That is that, that's that's we that is really an interesting question that is just not answered. We don't know that. It just seems conflicted. It does. It does. It absolutely does. It, or at best, it seems inconsistent for Peter. But Peter gets the point that God has now. For you and me, it's almost like. What's such a big deal here? But devout Jews who come to know Christ, and that's true in 2018, devout Jews who come to Christ must understand the new order has begun. All the kosher laws, law, ceremonial stuff is fulfilled in Christ. It's over. And so this is profound. And that's the reason chapter 10 is so to crucial watershed. Because now, because remember, the early church is made up of Jews who have come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Now they must change their attitude toward non-Jewish people. And who better to lead them in that than Peter and later Paul. And so, listen, this is going to become very important because as the church grows geographically, who is going to become the majority? Gentiles. Because, I mean, that's just, there are far more Gentiles than there are Jews in the Roman Mediterranean world. So as the gospel spreads to more and more areas and gets into more and more Gentile territory, it's going to create a challenge. And this is all pushing us toward Acts 15, the great Jerusalem council in AD 49. When they have to make a decision, are we going to have two churches? Jewish church, Gentile church? Or are the Jews going to have to acknowledge and the Gentiles are going to have to acknowledge that you're equal in Christ? And there are no longer any differences. That's a revolutionary, that's a revolutionary idea for both. So what Peter has experienced in this, this vision of the sheet and all that, and what has happened with Cornelius, now listen, and this God is just perfect in his timing. What happens with Cornelius validates for Peter the importance of that vision. And it changes Peter's perspective on things. And again, I mean, if you want to put it this way, Peter really understands now what his Savior Jesus was trying to tell all of them in the upper room. When the Holy Spirit comes, the new order has started. Galatians 3.28, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Everybody's equal in Christ. That's a radical revolutionary idea. (laughs) And so what Luke is doing, he's organizing all of this watershed change in in Peter's vision in Joppa and then what happens with Cornelius. The new order has started. Does that tie in with the scripture all things have become new? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's 2 Corinthians 
517. Yeah? I mean, I'm not sure I understand your question, but... Well, you're saying that both sides really are going to have to... Yes, yes, right. Yes, yeah. You have to look at things through the grid of how God is looking at things now. Not your prejudices or your background or anything. You now look at things the way God looks at them. And that's so it's and the new order has dawned, and that's what this Acts ten is all about. Oh, I better quit. Okay, I, I hope I I didn't I tr- I wanted to finish this, so maybe I went too fast here at the end. But I hope you got the point of this. We'll pick up with this next week, and then move into eleven and twelve. We're going to start getting back to Saul in a little bit. And what's happening to him? Are you all with me? What well, I'll pick up right away with verse 30. Because some other things happened to Cornelius, which we want to talk about. So, Did I go too fast, or are you with me? No. So you're ready to do the assignment I'm going to give you? Okay. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you very, very much that we are a part of the new order of things. We're on this side of the cross. We understand the powerful message that Peter had to internalize that there are no longer any differences. The kosher laws are irrelevant. They've been fulfilled. The separation between the chosen people of God and everybody else is gone. And now Peter is welcomed into a Roman military officer's home, and he, as we'll see next week, he will champion the gospel to these people. The entire family will come to Christ. That entire city is going to be in upheaval because of the gospel. And uh, this is a revolutionary change. It's, it's a, a clear marker that the old things are passing away. Behold, the new things are here. And uh, I'm thankful, Lord, as we said a moment ago, we all live on this side of the cross because we're a part of the new order. And we're just thankful for that. I thank you for each one of these men. I, I pray your continued work in their lives. Help them to see that they're a new creature in Christ. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new is here that they have a new power, a new enablement in the Spirit of God who indwells them. And you are the source of comfort. You're the source of edification. You're the source of the energy and enablement they can have to live for you and walk with you. And therefore, Lord, as your representatives, we want to represent you well. Help us to do that in all we say and all we do. And in the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. See you next week.